Turn now in the scriptures to 1 Corinthians 13 for the reading of God's Word. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Here then the Word of God, 1 Corinthians 13, beginning at verse 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not, charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things." Charity never faileth. Whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three. The greatest of these is charity. As far God's word, and indeed bless that this charity would be increasingly uh, seen in our own lives. Well, let us stand and seek now the Lord's blessing on the preaching of his word. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, your word tells us that God is love. Whereas we know that there are many who abuse this and misunderstand it and misrepresent it, we see it as a truth that your word declares and which is full of rich and delightful blessings for your children And we pray, O God, that as you have been pleased to reveal this truth, that you would bless us more to understand this truth, not merely to say what it doesn't mean, but to be much in saying what it does mean. And more than this, O Lord, to be those who know by experience the love of God in Christ Jesus, even as is recorded in the Word of God. We pray as well that you would open the eyes of the understanding of our hearts, that we would, with all the saints, 
come to know that which passes knowledge. We would know the love of God in Christ Jesus. And Father, as it is so of you, our God, our Father in heaven, bless that this would be so in us as your children, that we would know what it is each day to put to death sinful and selfish vices and affections, and to do so by the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. But also, O Lord, bless us to put on that new man, and above all, as we'll read, to put on charity. And grant, O Lord, that this would be an increasing uh, display, not falsely or hypocritically, but sincerely and truly, And so, Lord, as this is your revealed call to us, we pray, Lord, through Christ, bless us to see its increase, that with sincerity we would be filled within of all of these graces that we have considered, but also that we would see the evidence and the display of the same through the loving treatment of one another. Lord, we crave your Spirit's work. We pray, Lord, wherein we have sinned, We pray, forgive us by the blood of Christ, and thank you for that blood. And now renew and strengthen us and sanctify us as your people. We ask all this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The preaching of God's Word is Colossians 3 and verses 14 and 15, Colossians 3, 14 and 15, which is clearly flowing from the previous section. So we'll read for the sake of clarity, verses 12 through 15. Colossians 3, reading 12 through 15. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another, if any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Well, here we come again to the Word of God and considering this teaching of the new man and what we're calling the Christian's life. And you'll notice that it will get a bit more practical when it addresses various roles, as we're anticipating from verse 18 onward, and yet the things that are here before us are things that are for each of us, whatever our roles, whatever our circumstances, these are things that are to be true of every Christian. Surely ministers should have a large share in these graces and the exercise of putting to death the members which are upon the earth as well as putting on the new man which is made after the likeness of him who made him. And yet this is something exhorted to every Christian. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. And so all who are united to him are thus called to this. 
And what we've seen already and see clearly in the two verses before us is that the Christian's life is one of reality. It's not merely one of inner dreams and wishes, though there are things of desire that are realized in the heart of the Christian. There is the reality of inner transformation. And it's not only some outer display that is easily put on by anyone, naturally considered, but rather it is the sincere display of a life transformed. So you'll notice these two verses before us, one addresses, as it were, the outer display, uh, verse 14, above all these things, put on charity. And as noted last time, the language that Paul uses, above all, perhaps we would translate upon all, because the idea is that not necessarily of primacy, though it has that idea, but rather putting on top of everything else. It's the image of clothing. And this fits well in what he's saying when he says, for instance, verse 12, put on, right? Dress yourselves this way. And the outer garment that is seen by all is to be that of charity. You'll notice then he says this is the bond of perfectness or perfection. It is that to which we're uh, striving and it unites us together. But then as there's the outer display that is to be seen and witnessed by all, there is the inner reality that is likewise that, a reality. Let the peace of God, notice the language, rule in your hearts. And so it's not just, you know, white-knuckle it, put it on, get it out there, and show everyone this face. But whereas there is this outer display, this display to the world on the outside, it is something that is rooted on the inside. This peace of God ruling, governing, dictating, directing our hearts. Notice, to the which also we are called. This peace of God is that to which not just I or you individually, but we, as he says, ye, all of you, are called in one body. This peace of God, which is to be known by the body of Christ, notice, is to rule our hearts on the inside. And this is to lead us to be thankful. And so we see here on the inside and the out, some key elements of the Christian life. Love and peace and gratitude. Think of that for a moment, that these are in some fashion, the summary of what the display and reality of the Christian life is to be. It's not the only thing. There are other ways of summarizing it, of course. Uh, We're told to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's a summary type of statement. We're called to be holy as God our Father is holy. That's another summary. But here's one as well, that the chief and foremost display to others is to be one of charity, of love. And this is, of course, that which then causes that bond to be strengthened. And our souls, our hearts, the inside of us, is to be governed by the peace of God. And not just such a personal peace, though there is that notion, but notice it's put in the context of a corporate setting to the which ye are called, let the peace of God rule in your plural hearts, to the which ye, plural, are called in one body, 
and be ye thankful. In other words, these are not just personal graces. They are, of course, but they are to be uh, displayed by the whole of the body. The whole of the body is to be uh, pulling on the same rope in the same direction with the cultivating of charity or love and the realizing of this peace of God. So we wish to look at this evening three things. Firstly, the outer display of the Christian's life, uh, the inner foundation of the Christian's life, and the public benefit of the Christian's life. And as we do, we'll see that these are certainly private exercises as we're to personally put on these things, but they are to have a corporate display as well. And so what's said of the individual is to be true of the body, as Paul is indicating. Well, let's look firstly then at the outer display, and we'll note what we might call its beauty, because he speaks of charity, this word love. You'll notice he's mentioned something similar already in Colossians 2, and at verse 2, when he says that their hearts, this is his labor, he's laboring for, that their hearts might be comforted being knit together in love. Notice that language, not just that their hearts would have love, but their hearts would be knit together in love. It's an idea of a, a corporate and social, a, a public experience in the full and unto the, all the riches of the full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, so on. So this outer display has a beauty which is love. But what is love? The scriptures are full of what love is. Of course, we have the function, we might say, as we read earlier in 1 Corinthians 13, what does love do, right? And in some ways that's uh, a, a great way to discover what love is. So, First uh, Corinthians thirteen four through eight is not a definition of love. A definition would be something like, well, love is a gracious affection that postures us toward the good of others. Right? There'd be more to it, but rather, First Corinthians thirteen four through eight is giving us some concrete insights into what love does. What it functions as, what it looks like. And just notice these. Charity suffers long and is kind. And we came across this expression, suffereth long, in a previous sermon, but it has this notion of a long spirit. We think of, we use this expression, well, he has a short temper or a short fuse. So you think of that a bomb with a short fuse. You light it, you better run because it's going to go off. Well, we use that as an analogy to people that they have a short fuse. If you say one thing, two things, maybe they'll erupt. They don't have the patience to endure. Right? A long fuse, you can light it and sit there and watch as it goes its way and so on. It takes a long time for that anger and impatience to erupt. Well, what a beautiful thing it is. Notice the combination. Charity suffereth long and is kind. The whole time that it's enduring in a long way, it remains kind. All of us will know what we think, of course, is a long spirit, and yet if we were to analyze ourselves by the light of Scripture, we'd see that maybe the eruption doesn't take place so quickly as others 
uh, erupt. But on the inside, the eruption's taking place. It's going on inside. Well, love, you see, is actually generous and kind while it's enduring the grief. That's a beautiful thing. We see it, of course, in perfection with the Lord God himself. We see it as well in a variety of saints recorded in the scriptures. But notice the function continues. What else does charity do? Well, envieth not. Uh, One thing that we could say of our own culture today is it is full of envy. It is full of this lust to have what others have and this discontentment with what others gain and we don't have. How beautiful it is not to see just the stoic sort of by his own grit getting through, but through the grace of God transforming a soul sincerely to be without envy. That's the beauty of this grace. And you go further. We don't have to go through all of these, but just to see something of its function and thus its beauty, you'll notice that it says not only that it vaunteth not itself, it doesn't boast and so on. It's not puffed up. It doth not behave itself unseemly. Notice this expression, so essential to love. It seeketh not her own. Lust is consumed with her own. I want, if I don't have, I'm upset. I'm not going to treat that person the way that perhaps I think they should be treated because I don't want to. All of this stuff is about me, my, I, and so on. But you'll notice love is that which doesn't seek her own. Rather, love is consumed with giving and seeking the good of others. Of course, this is because... Whereas 1 Corinthians 13 shows us the function of love in the lives of God's people, we can look elsewhere to see the foundation of this beautiful grace. For instance, in 1 John chapter 4, what is the foundation of the function of this love? Well, you have it quite clearly stated in verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, We ought also to love one another. What's the foundation of so great and excellent and beautiful a display? It's actually the previous and perfect display of God's love to us. So notice what John's mentioned just before that. Verse 8, He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested or shown the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. Here in His love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And then, beloved, if God so loved us, that is, if He loved us in this way, if this is the way God loved us, we ought also to love one another. In other words, John is showing us that the foundation for this radical and sincere love that we're to display is actually the radical and sincere love which God has displayed. And we'll never, in other words, (coughs) be able to cultivate that kind of love unless we first have known God's love to us. So here's the beauty It's actually the reflection of God and His love. 
And you can see if you look again in Colossians chapter 3, that this is, of course, in many ways already anticipated when Paul has earlier stated that this new man is created or renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. And so you think of the idea of image, that which is seen. Well, here now Paul's saying that which is to be seen as the first seen thing, that outer garment, is to be love. And that is, of course, what God has displayed toward us. So what's the beauty of this outer display? It's this excellent grace of love. Now, brethren, before we go further, notice the prominence of this beautiful grace. It's to be above all. It's to be the garment seen by everyone. You know, you can think of it this way. If you're in a crowd and at some distance, you say, do you see that man there? And someone looks at you puzzled and say, what are you talking about? See that man? There are like 30 people over there. Who are you talking about? But do you see the man who's wearing the blue jacket? And that zeroes your attention. It focuses you into it. And you don't know anything else what the man is wearing. You don't know <coughs> the color of his shirt or socks, or anything else, but you can see the outer display, and it's prominent, so prominent that it catches your attention. That's what Paul is saying is to be the mark of the Christian. The thing that it should be so clear, which man are you talking about? Which woman? Which group of people? See those people who love? Oh yeah, I see those people. That's what Paul's getting at. (coughs) There to be a people who so prominently display this grace that it's the first and most clearly seen thing that marks them out. Put it on, he says, and put it on above all. We can think of how this can be ignored by the little ways that we love, right? We love to think, well, you know, Uh, We need to be doctrinally (coughs) orthodox, and we do. And yet, doctrinal orthodoxy, if blessed by God's grace, will lead us to the display of love. You see, it's not if we could go back to that color blue, if we could liken charity to blue. It's not, okay, Christians, wear a little bit of charity, and then you show up and you're looking and saying, well, where is it? Well, it's, it's hidden. It's right here. You know, I've got my spot of charity on me. Paul's saying it's to be covering everything. It's to be the prominent article of clothing that is put on so that everyone sees it. It's to mark out God's people. It's to be the display that everyone discerns. You can think of Uh, various ways that men today wear uniforms. So perhaps a work uniform and so on. The marks of it. Someone shows up for work, they have to wear the right attire. It marks them out. You think of different sports, how they have different uniforms. They're wearing a black shirt, they're wearing a white shirt to show which which team they're on. You think of military and uh, the various uh, uniforms that they wear. And you can tell just by the appearance what team they're on, what uh, uh, nation they're for, all of these different things. It's prominent. It's clear. Well, when we come to that 
article of clothing, the uniform of the Christian, the most prominently displayed article is this beautiful grace of love. There are many things that can be said of God because he says much of himself. There are few things that are so directly said of God as 1 John chapter 4, God is love. In other words, think of when God made himself known to Moses and he declares the name of God. He proclaims the Lord, the Lord God, gracious, merciful, abundant, and so on, all of these things. He doesn't as it were, ignore his holiness. He's made that clear. The angels witness his holiness, testify of his holiness. Isaiah discerns his holiness. All of this is true. But when God comes to declare his name, he sets forth prominently in the testimony to his people his love. And of course, the display of Christ on the cross is a display of all of his attributes and perfection. You have the justice and righteousness of God. You have uh, the long-suffering that he's uh, borne so long with the sins of God's people. The wrath of God is there. And yet, when the Scriptures come to disclose what this cross is to his people, the prominent message is God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. God is love. He loved us such that He's made His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The message of the cross in its prominent display is that of love of God to us. And so what is prominent in His revelation of Himself to us is also to be prominent in our display of His image to others. Now we have to acknowledge that the world has misconstrued what love is. And there are many other things that are to be true of the Christian as well in detail. But simply note that the prominent display above all, upon all, put on charity. That's the outer display. It's what's to be clearly witnessed of us. And brethren, doubtlessly, each of us has much to confess with these things. If we go back to the function of love in 1 Corinthians 13, 4-8, and we look through that, I remember a pastor saying, if you really want to examine yourself, wherever you find the word charity, place your name and see if it sounds right. Would you do that? Jonathan suffereth long and is kind. You see how instantly that makes you reflect and say, ooh, Is that actually true of me? You put your name in those descriptions. Is that function of love actually true of me? Well, brethren, the good news is that though it may not be perfectly, of course, true of us or even in the degree that it should be true of us, notice again that this is to be put on. This outer display is not to be a put on like a fake display, but it's to be put on by fellowship with Christ. So we may be convicted over how meager a display this is. Perhaps it is we've taken this outer garment and we've put it on inwardly and then we've put on a whole bunch of other things more prominently just to use the image. 
and we become convinced of that, convicted of that, well, it's not to be to our ultimate undoing, but rather to our repentance, that we again would look to Christ who is our life, who is indeed in us all, and by Him we are to seek the display of His image more beautifully to others. Well, notice then secondly the inner foundation And you'll see that most in verse 15. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. This inner foundation is indicated by this, what we might call, scene. Where is this taking place? It's in your hearts. Well, your heart, of course, in Scripture, both Old Testament, New Testament, Greek and Hebrew, is speaking of the inner man. You see something a bit more... Uh, uh, sort of descriptive when in uh, uh, verse 12 it speaks of bowels of mercies, the inner organs, as it were, of our being is to be filled with mercies. Well, here, similarly, our hearts, the inner seat of our affections, that fountain from which all else flows, is the scene before us now. It, in other words, the peace of God is not to rule our gestures. The peace of God is not to rule our speech. The peace of God is not to rule our motions and movements and actions because those things are the outworking of our hearts. The rule and reign of the peace of God is to be on the throne of our hearts, which then governs our gestures and actions and speech and so on. In other words, it's one thing to pretend to being at peace with one another. It's another thing from the heart to be governed by the peace which God gives. Well, what is this peace which God gives? We can see throughout the Scriptures many things, but notice, for instance, there's an emphasis for the believer on the peace which God has given us in Christ with Him. So, One preeminent example is Romans chapter 5, when we read verse 1, Therefore being justified by faith, that is declared righteous by faith, and all that Paul is open in Romans 3, 4, and 5, he says, Having been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You notice a couple of things. One is the gracious work of God for us in Christ, which is the foundation of justification, is, has already been opened. Right? Paul has dealt with that in Romans 3 and 4. And now he's saying, that being the case, that God has declared us righteous, not by our works, but rather by our faith, receiving Christ, trusting in Him, what is the benefit to us? Well, we have peace with God. The work of Christ received by faith gives us peace with God. We're no longer at war. We're no longer at enmity with God. It's through our Lord Jesus Christ. But notice that peace is not simply some sort of absence of of enmity. It certainly includes that. But notice this language that he uses in verse 2 of Romans 5, by whom, that is by Christ also, we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. There's something of motion taking place. Our souls engage in, enter into this 
enjoyment of the grace that God has given us to the end that we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The peace, in other words, is not just a neutralizing of a disturbance. It's not as if, for instance, you're looking out at the waters and the storm stops and now the waters stop moving. That's included, but there's actually something then that is active in us when there's the peace of God given to us. We are brought to engage in the grace that God has given and we then bring forth praise to the glory, uh, rejoice rather, in the hope of the glory of God. So this peace is what God gives us in Christ that establishes with us not only this neutralizing of enmity, but an enjoyment of God Himself. That we now have a, 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 a confidence to draw near to Him, to give thanks to Him and to draw from Him And so it gives us, in other words, a positive enjoyment of God, not just the neutralizing of the disturbance of our sins. But you'll notice as well, the Scriptures make much of this as well, that it establishes peace with other Christians, with one another. So you'll see that, for instance, in Colossians 3, when he speaks of the fact that in Christ there is neither Greek nor Jew, verse 11, circumcision or uncircumcision, and so on, and centers it all upon Christ who is all and in all. You see it as well in Ephesians chapter 2, when in verse 14 and 15, we read of Christ who is our peace, who hath made both one. Well, who's the both? It's the Gentile and the Jew, as he mentions earlier in the chapter. He is our peace, Christ is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. That which separated us, he's removed. He's abolished in his flesh the enmity and the law of commandments contained in ordinances for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, and having slain the enmity thereby, came and preached peace to you which were far off, to them which were that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. And you'll see Ephesians 2 is putting both of these ideas together. God has given us such peace that we may enjoy God. But he's given, let's emphasize it this way, us peace that we may enjoy God. It's true of the individual. I have peace with God. And I can point to another individual Christian You have peace with God. He has peace with God and so on. But here the emphasis is that we have peace with God. And this is to transform our interactions with one another. It is to govern our hearts. That we're to remember, in other words, that this peace which God has made and which God has given is to govern our hearts toward one another. And this is, in some sense, the back of what Paul says elsewhere. Who are you to judge? You're, you know, the, the, the master's servant. You're not the master. God is. You're not the one who's redeemed him. God has. The peace which God has made for his people is to dictate and govern the way we treat one another, the way we speak with one another, the way we engage with one another because of this great work of God. It's also to cause us 
to cultivate peace with one another. And so we'll get to that in a moment, but notice this is to be in the heart. Our hearts are to be brought to embrace this peace, to enjoy this peace, and to engage in this peace. So this is the inner foundation. You can see the connection when there is this knowledge of what God has done for us and establishing us for us peace by the blood of Christ with him and with one another, it then will lead us to put on the display of sincere love. You know, when, we're, when we are at peace with others, not just a neutral idea, but when there is that uh, uh, culture of peace and enjoyment, there is the ready display of kindness and love to others. And the idea is this, there is an objective peace that God has given us by the blood of Christ, and that's to penetrate and govern our hearts. The point here is that the Christian's life is not a fictitious display. It's not one of external constraint, well, you're going to do it because it's right. There is, of course, the call for us to display it outwardly, as we've seen. But the call is not merely one of external constraint, a rigid force, you're going to do it, I'm going to pull the chain, now you're moving because I've made you. But God actually has done something for us within. And what he's done without by the blood of Christ, giving us peace, is to be applied to our hearts, which then settling our souls both toward God and toward one another, we then more easily by his grace are able to put on this outer display of charity. Notice as we press on thirdly the public benefit. Both verses emphasize this. Notice in verse 15 we see there is a united body so to the which ye also also ye are called in one body. So the body is united. God has called us to be one. Right? Paul talks about this unity in the book of Ephesians. Uh, with greater clarity. But the point he emphasizes here is that we are one body. Now think of this. We consider it to be a malfunction of our bodies when organs start, as it were, to fight against other organs, when cells attack the wrong thing. Our body is, as it were, injuring itself. We need medication, you know, skillful care, and so on, the Lord's intervention to heal that. We would be greatly distressed if we went to the doctor with various symptoms and they said, listen, your body is attacking itself. That's the problem. Well, what do we do with that? That's a problem. I'm not ready just to give up on that. I need help. I want help. The point here is the Christian church is actually throughout the scripture never treated as opposing denominations. The opposing denominations is the construct of error and division because of man's sin. And so we, of course, don't mean by that that denominations are necessarily sinful, but rather we mean that the fact of denominations over doctrinal or practical differences is because of sin along the way. The thing for which we ought to be striving is to realize more fully the reality of that unity which God has established us because we are a united body. So there are individual churches. Paul writes to the churches of Galatia. And yet the church as a whole is one. We are united. 
And not only are we to be united, notice he doesn't say something like, let, let orthodoxy rule in your hearts. And then we say, well, you know, the church is one because we all subscribe to the Trinity and the person and work of Christ and so on. That's true. But notice that the peace of God is to rule our hearts. And this is to what we are called. There's to be a practical unity as well. There is a doctrinal unity wherever there's true Christianity, where there are some differences, of course, between this denomination and that denomination and so on. If it's a Christian denomination, there will be unity in certain doctrinal things. But notice here before us, the the scene is one of a practical unity, a united body. It does no good for us to say, well, the cells that are attacking other organs in my body are part of the same body. The problem is, it's not practically working together as it should. And that's a disorder. That needs intervention, or something's going to go tremendously wrong. What Paul is emphasizing here, not to the denial of the doctrinal unity that characterizes the church, but rather, here he's emphasizing the practical unity the church is called to by the peace of God. So this is a public benefit when the peace of God does rule in our hearts. It, as it were, expresses the united body. It gives evidence of the united body. But notice in verse 14, there is what we might call a uniting body. This united body to which we are called, and the peace of God is to rule our hearts, in this united body, is to be a body which is seeking the strengthening of that unity. That's why he says, above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. It's that which unites. Well, notice, we're to put it on. We're to put on that which unites us, which is the perfect bond, which causes that bond to be strong and stable. In other words, if we can go almost full circle, if we can say it that way, back to 1 Corinthians 13, and you can think about the function of love. How is it that the body will grow in unity? Well, this is not to disregard the fact that doctrine is of a preeminent importance, but it's likewise to say that practice, true godly practice, is equally important. In other words, if we want a united body, we can look elsewhere. It's not here so much. We can emphasize the importance of doctrine. We see that everywhere in the scriptures. But notice, there's also the importance of love, the cultivating of love. And when that's done, it has the impact, joined with doctrinal integrity, of strengthening the bond that is. So we know what it is to have a body, and we know through illness and injury what it is to have a weakened body, right? We also know what it is to strengthen our body or to have health restored, and so it becomes stronger. Well, we have the body of Christ. Whatever men are doing and so on, there aren't multiple bodies of Christ. There's one ultimate church. But we will be ready to admit, though it is united in essence, it is in a weak state in its display. What is, at least from this passage, one thing that will go far to cultivate the strengthening of unity. It's the putting on of love. All of this has to be brought in with the fact 
that we need preachers who preach the word in season, out of season. This is, of course, the fact that we need those who teach the word and know how rightly to divide uh, the word of God. All of that's true. But brethren, with that, we must be earnest in cultivating love. Now, how does this impact us today? Well, we pray and we hope and study and so on to be those who are well instructed in the Word of God. This should be something to which we are devoted, man and woman, adult and child alike, that we're making efforts to grow in the knowledge of God's revealed will. This is through the study of the Bible preeminently, uh, not only personally, but in the public proclamation of the Word of God. So the Word of God is instructing us and that error is being cut off and our uh, doctrine is being reformed According to what? According to the Word of God. So when Paul was ministering in Ephesus, he went house to house preaching and teaching the whole counsel of God. Well, here's the point. If we summarize that, there must be the growth of orthodoxy. It must be so. It's not optional for the Christian. No Christian can say, well, I'm not gifted in understanding, so I'm going to sort of check out and I'm going to coast in my study of Scripture. That's illegitimate because the scriptures give us whole chapters, even whole books that Colossians is doing what? It's teaching us God's word, his will. And so the very essence of the fact that we have been given a book that is meant to instruct us necessarily demands that every Christian is a learner. Brethren, there are reactions to the, the, the state of things today where there is such a paucity of doctrinal knowledge in our day and age. And they say, well, all we need then is doctrine. All we need then is orthodoxy and so on. When in reality, we do need to correct that error, but with that, we need to be cultivating the reality of love. The church that will be most united, the congregation, if we say it that limited way, that will be most united will be the congregation that is striving with earnestness to take captive each thought to the obedience of Christ, to grow in the knowledge of the will of God, the word of God, the teaching of God, so orthodoxy will be on the rise, doctrine will be reformed according to his word, and which is striving with equal diligence to cultivate and put on these beautiful garments of grace. When those things are together... There is the balance and symmetry of true beauty. And so you can think, if you step back for a moment and survey Colossians, chapter 1, you have tremendously weighty doctrine of the person of Christ and the work of Christ. Think of what's stated, for instance, when in Colossians 1 it speaks of uh, Christ who Uh, is the one in whom we have redemption through his blood. Verse 14, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. It speaks of the person and the work of Christ. You have chapter 2, which is speaking of the doctrine of godliness and the application of different things. And so you have doctrinally heavy themes in Colossians 1 and 2. That's part of being a whole-built Christian and congregation, the doctrine. But here he's emphasizing and pressing the practical outworking of grace. And so in other words, if we wish to grow 
as a mature body of Christ, we must labor to understand the truth. We must give ourselves to the instruction in righteousness, but we also must labor with equal diligence with reference to the putting on of these graces. But how? Here's where doctrine's important. We do so in fellowship with Christ. We do so as those who are united to Christ, in whom we have life, by whom we have life. And so it is that the Christian's life is, as it were, doctrinally informed and practically displayed. Both of those are together. But all of that is within the living and vital fellowship of the risen and reigning King, the Lord Jesus Himself. So brethren, as a congregation, we have need of this. But this is something that should characterize our prayers for the church and our posture toward the broader church that we would be those who contend earnestly for the faith once delivered to the saints. And we are not willing to compromise uh, any doctrine because it's not our doctrine to compromise. This is not something that's permitted to us. We can't say, well, you know, I can sort of see why you disagree and we don't have to really make that point. No, we contend earnestly because it's God's truth. And yet we do so both in zeal to God and in a loving posture toward our brethren. And yet in matters uh, not doctrinally considered, we're equal to display our charity, our kindness, our suffering long and being kind, our serving and uh, loving care of those around us. And as we seek this and display it personally and pray for it, what we're praying for in a bit more concrete way is that God's kingdom would come. So you think of that form of prayer that Christ taught us to pray. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Well, one thing that that kingdom includes is the establishing of this unity in the church more beautifully. The display of doctrinal precision, yes, and the display of a robust and practical love that is the bond of perfectness. So brethren, let us give ourselves to the doctrinal instruction of God's Word And as instructed by His Word, directed to the fountain of life in Christ, may we be those who put on charity and let the peace of God rule in our hearts that in the end, the church would be strengthened in unity. And notice that we don't touch, but touch on it just now, that this will cause us to be thankful and be ye thankful. How could we not be thankful if by God's grace we're transformed to know the peace of God reigning in our hearts, displaying that with one another, loving one another. Think of this, not only an individual loving others, but the others engaged in that love. There's a reciprocation. There is a participation. It's not just this person is the one lone Christian in the bunch that's loving others. It's the whole of the body loving one another. Think of the beautiful richness of God's grace evident, how could it not be then but that we would be brought to be thankful for the grace given us in Christ Jesus? Would you stand with me then for prayer? Let us pray.